Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey everyone, this is Patrick. Thank you for tuning into this week's podcast episode. My guest is Richard Duncan. Richard is an economist, an author of several books. He has a new book coming out as well, and also the creator of the Macro Watch newsletter. Now, Richard has a a perspective on monetary policy that is unique to most other economists. Last year, right as Everything was shutting down. If you guys have been listening for a while, Richard was my guest. Now he lives in in Thailand and has lived there for for many years and is very familiar with Asia, specifically, you know, what's going on with monetary policy there. And, you know, after the interview, I mean, the interview was really long and he offered just an incredible discount on his newsletter. And if you guys followed that newsletter, then everything that played out from the perspective of how the US intervened as well as how they leverage the central banking system. He basically called everything. And it's uh, it's interesting to see what he's saying right now. So before we get into the interview, go check out his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. If you want to subscribe to his newsletter, he kept that code open. So you get 50% off of his newsletter. And that code is June. Now this interview, it lasted a long time. The last uh, last interview, we actually had to break into two parts. This one is just as long, but what I decided to do is get or just cut out the philosophical piece and get right to the meat of the interview. And then I'm going to post the entire interview on our website, which is thewealthstandard.com. So you guys can access that in the show notes if you want to watch the entire interview. And it'll also be available on YouTube. Right now, what's going on, it's an unprecedented time as far as liquidity that is slated to go into the capital markets. It's incredible how much there is over a short period of time. So you're definitely going to want to pay attention to what Richard is saying so that you can understand how that's going to impact what markets uh, what markets do. So without further delay, let's get to the interview with my friend, economist, Richard Duncan. Taking a break from the show, you know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business, and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. 
Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting. The spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised. Register for the Entrepreneur 101 course today for free at thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. That's Echo November Tango. Thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. Richard, it's good to be with you. Thank you for reaching out and wanting to have another conversation. A lot has transpired since our last interview nearly a year ago. How's life with you know what you guys are spending you're spending some time in northern thailand at a at a house you have what's been your experience these last 12 months patrick thank you for having me back on i enjoyed our last conversation and i'm looking forward to this one so yes well what a year right i think it was 11 months ago when we spoke and you asked about my experience living here in thailand so that luckily thailand has not been very hard hit by the pandemic thus far only in total there have only been 29,000 cases which is really difficult to understand why that is but thailand has so been largely spared but in any case normally we live in bangkok but we also have a house in northern thailand out in the countryside so for for the last year we have been here out in the countryside <laughs> i would never have thought that i would have stayed in the countryside for an entire year but it's turned out to be very pleasant in most, most respects. It's beautiful. We're surrounded by rice paddies. You wake up and hear the birds chirping in the morning. I ride my bicycle. It's, it's really beautiful countryside. The people are nice. And so it hasn't been a great hardship. And thanks to the internet, I'm able to do all my work here and communicate with people like you. So life has been good. Thanks. You know, it's an interesting dynamic where you live in this you know, a, this beautiful place and obviously with a very chaotic time in human history, right? You're probably looking at the news, getting onto websites, and it's a, a very stark contrast to what you're experiencing literally. Tell us about uh, what your experience has been seeing, what has gone on around the world, what the response has been, and then we can shift over to what are your thoughts on what's to come? All right. Well, so a year ago when we spoke, or 11 months ago, it was very uncertain how pandemic would play out. Of course, it is still uncertain, but also the government's policy response was not entirely clear at that time. And on March 15th, I published a video called, a macro watch video called Recession or Depression. In that video, I, I argued that whether the United States collapsed into a full-fledged Great Depression or merely suffered a recession would depend entirely on the government's policy response. If the government borrowed and spent enough money to keep the economy intact, then we could get by with only having a recession. And if the Fed created enough money to help the government finance all of that debt at low interest rates, then we would come out of this pandemic looking more or less as we did when we went in. But if they failed to do that, if they failed to act aggressively enough, then the economy would collapse into a 1930s-style depression from which we might never have escaped. So luckily, as it turns out, they have responded with very aggressively. Government debt increased by $5 trillion last year. And also over the last year, the Fed has created $3.5 trillion to, have, to help finance that debt. 
So the government has done the right thing. Well, they really had two options. They could have done what the government did in 1930 when the bubble of the 1920s popped. At that time, the government didn't do very much of anything, and the economy collapsed. A third of the banks failed. Unemployment went up to 25%. We were stuck in a depression for 10 years. And only when World War II started and the government spent much more money did that depression end. That was one option. The other option was to do what they did in 2008. When that bubble popped, the government jumped in with trillion-dollar budget deficits, and the Fed created, uh, again, uh, roughly $3 trillion, financed those deficits, and they kept the bubble inflated from 2008 up until the time this pandemic started. And we didn't collapse into a depression then. So luckily, they chose the 2008 option, which was far wiser than the 1930s option. And so here we are. The economy is now on the verge of booming. They say we're likely to have 6 to 7 possibly even 8% GDP growth this year, highest since uh, uh, the 1980s. And by the way, the reason we had such rapid economic growth in the 1980s under President Reagan is because during his eight years as president, he tripled the government debt. He had such massive budget deficits that the government debt tripled. And during World War II, the government debt expanded five times in four years. Under President Reagan, it expanded three times in eight years. So we're no, nowhere near expanding the government debt by three times as, as President Reagan did. But so that was just an aside. The economy boomed in the 80s because of all of the government debt. President Reagan invested, uh, had the government invest aggressively in the military. And that worked out really well for us and really badly for the Soviet Union, which couldn't keep up and, and they collapsed and we won. And the economy boomed and uh, that's what happened in the 80s. And so here we are. The economy is now, it has survived. It looks like it's not going to collapse into a depression. And I'm thankful for that. I think everyone else should be as well. Now, looking at the the positives, which you've highlighted, you know, we we can see that their response, you know, helped a lot. It kept business, specifically in the United States, it kept businesses afloat. Uh, it had some, you know, parameters in there, right? As far as stimulus to businesses where you couldn't let go of employees. You also had, you know, from that housing market standpoint. You go back to 2008, 2009, it was, it was interesting to see how quickly the response was to creating forbearance programs that prevented people from defaulting on their mortgage and they'd be able to tack on payments that they missed to the end of the mortgage. So it's interesting to see the response, but, it's, but Richard, it seems too easy where you know something goes wrong, print a bunch of money and stimulate this, stimulate this, stimulate this. So I know that there is, there's narrative, there's philosophy that has to do with economics. And there's very different perspectives in that regard. What are the are there consequences to this? Are there unintended consequences to this type of response? I mean, I think we're past the point of no return. <laughs> we it's gotta we want the economy to keep going. This is what has to happen. But are there are there consequences? Are there consequences to that? One more point uh, about what the government did and to save the economy. If the government had not sent out these big stimulus checks and extended the unemployment payments to the unemployed workers, then tens of millions of Americans would have defaulted on their mortgages and their credit cards and their car payments and the corporations as well. Corporate revenues would have collapsed 
So they would have defaulted on their bank loans as well. And all of the U.S. banks, therefore, would have failed, destroying all the deposits in the country. And people probably are not really as aware of that as they should be. We don't talk about what happened this time as being a bank bailout, but the great beneficiaries of what the government did were the the banks, the banking system. The banking system would have completely failed without doubt had the government not provided funding to individuals and corporations who had borrowed from the banks. So this saved our banking system. And and of course, if the banking system had failed, then the economy would have collapsed. Now, so that's all been great. The banks are very keen to start uh, paying large dividends again to their shareholders and carrying out share buybacks and keeping their tax rates very low. They would prefer people don't understand that they were saved by the government. But I think it's important for everybody to be aware of that. The, the banks owe their survival to government intervention. And everybody who has a bank account only has one now because of the government intervention. So that's another thing we can be grateful for. The financial system didn't collapse and all the deposits weren't destroyed. Now, now to answer your question, are there potentially any negative side effects? Well, what we're living through is probably the greatest economic experiment in history, or one of the greatest economic experiments. Because after all, everyone was taught in their economic class at university that if the government has big budget deficits, and heaven forbid, if the the Fed creates a lot of money and finances those budget deficits, that inevitably leads to very high rates of inflation that uh, destabilizes the economy and creates all kinds of chaos. And therefore, they must not do those things. But what we've seen now twice, first in 2008 and the years immediately after that, and again now, is that the government has run very, very large budget deficits. Last year, the budget deficit was $3.1 trillion. And this year is going to be closer to four, probably. And the Fed has, as I mentioned, they've already created $3.5 trillion over the last year. And if you go back to 2008, since then, the Fed has created eight times as much money. There's now eight times as many dollars in the world as a result of quantitative easing as there was at the end of 2007. And still, we haven't experienced inflation at this consumer price level in any meaningful way. And now things are going to, we are going to see some pickup in inflation going forward now. Because first of all, last year in March and April, prices were falling. Remember, gasoline fell to minus $40 a barrel. You had to pay people $40 a barrel to take your gasoline, uh, to, take your, to take your oil. And so, of course, on a year-on-year comparison with March and April last year, the CPI numbers, the inflation numbers that come out are going to be higher. There will be some tick up in inflation. But that is completely transitory. That will wash out a few months later. We're also seeing commodity prices move up. Commodity prices, though, are extremely volatile. They shoot up 20, 30, 40% one year, and a year and a half later, they're down 20, 30, 40%. And so that's why the Fed ignores in energy prices when they're conducting monetary policy, because they're just so extremely volatile, you can't possibly the, the Fed, what, what would the Fed do? One year you have a spike in commodity prices, and what are they supposed to do? Jack up the federal funds rate to 10% and crash the economy? 
<laughs> when the next year we're likely to see a 20% drop in commodity prices, then what do they do? So it would be impossible to conduct monetary policy if you if you didn't strip out the commodity price inflation swings. But we so we are going to see higher rates of commodity prices. And so the headline inflation number will move up some. But what the Fed focuses on is core inflation. And in particular, uh, one measure of inflation that they call the personal consumption expenditure price index, the PCE price index, that strips out the core, that strips out food and energy. This is just up, and they would like the Fed would like to see this increase by 2% a year. Their inflation target is 2% a year. In January, the most recent month, it was up 1.5% year on year. And the Fed has not been able to make the inflation grow as much as they would like for decades. Going back to 2000, this core PCE price index average, it has averaged 1.7% a year for 20 years. And over the last 10 years, it's been even less, 1.6% a year. So the Fed now has extraordinarily loose monetary policy. They're creating $120 billion every month and injecting it into the financial markets by buying bonds. And they don't. I think wasn't there a day last week? I am, well, I think this would be the second second week of March where they injected like almost three hundred billion in in one day. That's possible. If that's if, I don't know. I didn't see that. I don't. I don't think that happened this year. But there was one week in March last year when they injected five hundred billion dollars in one week in one week, which was you know off the charts. But especially since. Up until 2007, in the first 93 years of their existence, they had only created less than $900 billion in 93 years. Less than $900 billion created in 93 years. And then one week in March last year, they created $500 billion in a week. So monetary policy is very loose. And the Fed keeps telling us, we don't think there is going to be any significantly higher inflation anytime soon. And here's why. We recognize the commodity prices are going to go up, but that's transitory. So we're going to ignore that. The real factor that will determine whether or not there is inflation in the United States is whether there's wage inflation. And here, that seems unlikely because 10 million fewer Americans have jobs now than one year ago. And until these 10 million Americans get their jobs back, it seems unlikely that there's going to be a whole lot of wage price inflation when you have all of these unemployed people looking for jobs. So the Fed's saying that, look, we're going to keep supporting the economy with very loose monetary policy until these people get their jobs back. And we actually see inflation at the core level beginning to move higher. Their target is 2%. But last August, they announced quite a significant change in their policy. They said, in the past, we have targeted 2% inflation at the core level. And anytime that we thought the economy was getting too hot and that the unemployment rate was going too low, if the unemployment rate goes very low, then you would think wage inflation would pick up. If the unemployment rate started going too low, they would start hiking interest rates preemptively to make sure that they could cool the economy down preemptively before there was inflation setting in. But what they saw is over the last couple of cycles, I mean, for instance, before the pandemic started, the unemployment rate had dropped to three and a half percent. 
which was a 50-year low. And still, there was the inflation rate was less than 2%. They couldn't, even then, they couldn't hit their inflation target. But they had acted preemptively and had already started increasing interest rates. And so that slowed the economy down unnecessarily and caused people not to be able to find jobs who would have found jobs had they not increased interest rates. So they've changed their policy now. And they have said, first of all, we're not going to hike interest rates preemptively anymore. We're going to wait until we actually see that there is inflation, a core PCE inflation. And furthermore, since we've undershot our inflation target for the last 20 years, we're going to allow the inflation rate to move above 2% so that it averages 2% over the long run. So even if the inflation rate does move up to 2%, it can move up to even 2.5%, perhaps even 3% for six months, 12 months, 18 months, still before the Fed would act, because that would they're now trying to target an average of 2% over the long run. So the Fed is going to continue to have very loose monetary policy for the rest of this year, unless something extraordinary happens and they do an extraordinary monetary policy U-turn. Every speech they make, they say, we are going to keep interest rates at the federal funds rate at 0%, and we're going to keep pumping in at least $120 billion a month into the financial system and into the economy until these 10 million Americans get their jobs back and we start to see some wage price inflation. And on top of that, it's not only, so the big issue is, I mean, everyone is frightened of inflation now. And because of that, the 10-year government bond yield has moved up quite quickly. And people are afraid of inflation and they don't want to buy a bond that pays 1% because if the inflation rate moves up to 3%, then of course, they're going to lose money on their bond. So the 10-year government bond yield has moved up from, it was less than, yielding less than 1% at the beginning of the year. And last week, it moved up to very quickly to 1.75%. This morning, it's closer to 1.6%. But so with the bond yields moving up quickly, that has spooked the financial markets to some extent and caused some of the higher flying NASDAQ stocks to, to be hit. That said, the markets are still all very close to their all-time highs. But so the Fed is telling us that they're not going to, to tighten monetary policy anytime soon. And, but the markets are not sure that they believe them. But it's unlikely that they're going to tighten monetary policy. The real question is, so there's this there's this battle going on in the markets. On the one side, the markets are being hit by just a tidal wave of liquidity, which I'll come back to in just a moment. There's so much new money going into the markets right now that it should drive them higher, even though the asset prices are already very expensive by historic standards. But on the other side, so that's the bullish side, this tidal wave of liquidity, this liquidity tsunami hitting the markets should push stocks and gold and other asset prices higher. But on the other side, there are growing fears of inflation. And therefore, that's pushing up interest rates on the 10-year government bonds. And if they keep moving higher quickly, then that could cause the stock market sell-off. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch which side wins out the, the enormous surge in liquidity hitting the markets 
or the the fear of inflation uh, undermining the markets because of pushing up higher interest rates. What are they using as, you know, other than just logic as far as fearing inflation, is there anything that they're looking to, you know, numerically, objectively, that tells them that there's going to be inflation? Well, I think there are a number of things. First of all, they see this new $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. And therefore, as a result of that bill, most Americans are receiving $1,400 checks. And well, it's like every member of the family gets a a check. (laughs) Right. And so this uh, changes a lot because Americans have been locked down to some extent for a year. And because they have been receiving such uh, generous support from the government, they have much more in savings than they have for decades. Savings rates very high. And so with the vaccines rolling out, people want to go out and spend money and go places and do things. And there's concern that uh, that that by itself, given that they have a lot of money to spend, is going to result in inflation. And on top of that, there are some significant supply bottlenecks in terms of things like semiconductors and various things across many different supply chains have been disrupted by the virus. That will work itself out before too much longer. But that'll impact prices though, right? Because typically there's there's not much response you know, over the short term, right? To those type of supply chain expenses or cost of goods, right? The prices are adjusted, you know, a couple times. Well, maybe once a year, if if anything. So, the, so you're saying that you know those ty- those costs of manufacturing are going to influence you know manufacturers having to increase their prices. That's right. So there will be some inflationary pressure, but should you view this as permanent or is this? a transitory factor. It it hits one year and then goes away? Or is this something that's going to be sustaining and recurs year after year? If it's only a transitory impact, then the Fed is going to ignore it. Exactly. And the most important thing for people to never forget is the United States no longer has a closed domestic economy. What the United States buys is not what the United States produces. In the past, we had a relatively closed domestic economy. And if the government spent too much money and the Fed printed too much money, then pretty soon all the Americans would have jobs and all the American factories would be working at full capacity. And this would lead to upward pressure on goods, but also on wages. And this would lead to a wage push inflation spiral. And that's what happened in the 1960s and particularly the first half of the 1970s. But now we're in a completely different environment. Our economy now, we don't source goods simply from within the borders of the United States. We source things from the entire planet. And the entire planet, the labor supply is 23 times larger than the American labor supply. And moreover, most of these people work at a substantially lower wage rate than the Americans. For instance, 2 billion people out of 8 billion on the planet still live on less than $3 a day. So this has completely transformed the economic environment in which our economic system functions. And that's why it's been possible to run the economy so hot with um, these massive government stimulus programs after 2008 
and all the paper money creation that's, that's financed them after 2008 and also last year and ongoing this year. So it's not just a matter of getting the 10 million Americans back to work who've lost their jobs. We also have to keep in, in mind that we have a whole world full of people willing to work. You know, we have generations ahead of us where we're going to have excess labor, excess low-cost labor. And so that's why we've moved into this low in inflation environment starting in the 1980s when, when President Reagan tripled the budget deficit, when President Reagan tripled the, the government debt in just eight years. You would have expected that to cause high rates of inflation in the 80s as it had as high government debt did in the 1960s and 70s. But that didn't happen. Why? Because starting in the early 1980s, that's when, for the first time, the U.S. started running these huge trade deficits with the rest of the world. Never before did the U.S. have these trade deficits. But by the middle of the 80s, the trade deficit was 3.5% of U.S. GDP. And by 2006, it was 6% of GDP, $800 billion in that one year alone. And that changed everything. Since we started running these deficits and since we started moving factories offshore and hiring people for less than $10 a day, inflation has collapsed because wage and wages haven't risen. And, and we're not going to return to a period of high wage growth and high inflation in the United States unless globalization collapses. And that doesn't seem likely. So maybe explain... Just for listeners don't necessarily understand the impact of, of trade deficits, how, how do trade deficits give the United States leverage or maybe the ability to institute these types of monetary stimulus packages and injecting money and doing you know their monetary policy being very driven to continue to stimulate and stimulate and inject you know inject capital well so it's interesting. All of classical economic theory, which everyone has, is still being taught, all of that theory was constructed on the cornerstone of the gold standard. The whole theory began with the understanding that gold is money. And because gold was money, there were certain constraints. And those constraints defined how the economy could work. For instance, well, of course, the central bank was not free to create limitless amounts of money because they had to have gold to back the, the money that they created. They couldn't just simply do as they do now and create $120 billion a month because they had to have, they literally had to have gold in the safe at the central bank to back the money they created. So it limited how much money they could create. And, but also, very importantly, under the gold standard or the Bretton Woods system, which lasted up until 1971, it was impossible for countries to have large trade deficits with other countries. Because if the United States, for instance, had a large trade deficit with the rest of the world or, or any one country in particular, let's say China, a few years ago, the US trade deficit with China was a billion dollars a day, more than $400 billion a year. Well, that was not possible under a gold standard because the United States would have had to pay for its trade deficit by shipping its gold to China. And because the more gold it shipped to China, the less money there would be, the less gold, and therefore the less 
dollars there would be in the United States. So the money supply would contract. Everybody would have fewer dollars and they would lose their jobs and companies would lose business and unemployment would skyrocket and there would be deep deflation and a depression. So countries with trade deficits lost their gold and had to stop buying things from other countries. Whereas the countries with the trade surpluses, they got more gold and they could expand their credit on the back of that larger gold base and their economy would boom and they would have full employment and they would have inflation. And pretty soon they would be richer and they would start buying more things from the poor country that was deflating with the deficit. The deficit country would have to buy less. The surplus country would be able to buy more and trade would come back into balance. There was an automatic adjustment mechanism that ensured that trade between balance countries had to balance. And it did. You can look at a chart of the U.S. trade deficit or current account deficit going back as far as the data goes. And until 1980, there essentially wasn't no, none. There was no trade deficit. But so the Bretton Woods system broke down in 1971. And afterwards, dollars were no longer backed by gold or anything else. And the Fed was free to create as many of them as it dared. The only real constraint was they were afraid if they created too many, that it would lead to higher rates. It would overstimulate the U.S. economy, cause everybody in the United States to be fully employed. The factories would be working at full capacity. It would end up being a lot of bottlenecks, both in industrial capacity and in labor. And this would lead to higher rates of inflation for goods and wages and a wage push inflation spiral. And that's what happened in the late 60s and early 70s. But starting in the early 1980s, the United States caught on to the reality that since they didn't have to pay with gold anymore, they could start running very large trade deficits with the rest of the world and buying things from other countries and paying for those things in not dollars. with gold, but with dollars, of which there was no limit as to how many they could create. <laughs> or government bonds more realistically. But again, there was no limit as to how many government bonds the government could issue. And so the size of our labor pool, you know, let's say there's, well, there are 330 million Americans now. Let's ignore the, you know, the children and the people who are not working. But so rather than being limited to a labor pool of 330 million Americans, we now can source our goods from a labor pool of 7.8 billion people. 23, our labor pool has expanded by 23 times as a result of this change that only came about when money stopped being backed by gold. And so this completely changes the way our economic system functions now. All of economic theory, which was constructed on this foundation stone of gold, once gold was removed, once that foundation stone was removed, that entire edifice of classical economic theory, no longer, it collapsed. It can no longer explain the way our economy works now. Because, for one thing, the Fed is free to create as much money as it chooses, as we've seen over the last year, and particularly since 2008. And trade no longer has to balance. So they can get away with all of this money creation without causing high rates of inflation, which used to result in the past when we had a closed domestic economy that no longer does now when we have 23 times more people in our labor pool. 
And this is Richard. I think we're setting we're setting this the stage for what's to come. Where I where I see where I see conflict right is that there are many who still subscribe to maybe not pure classical economics, but still they subscribe to how things should be, not how things are. And they're making decisions based on how things should be, you know, think looking at our economy and operating the way that it is leading to a demise of the economy. And, you know, the classical theory would say that that is, is probably true, but yet given the points you've just made, it's highly unlikely. So why do they continue to, so, you know, before we move on, because I'm going to talk about the impact of what our current monetary policy is going to make on markets and on asset prices and what people should be paying attention to. Maybe before we move to that, where are people stuck? Why are they not able to see what you see? Is it they're just clinging to ideas and wanting to be right and finding all sorts of proof and variables that back up and validate their theory? Or what other explanation is there for the diff, you know, the, the more traditional classical view of how things should operate rather than how they are operating? Well, when you have generations of people who have been taught this theory that large government debts and a lot of paper money creation by the central bank is undesirable and leads to very high rates of inflation that is destabilizing, and they've been taught this gospel, um, it's very hard to persuade them that it's not true. I think one of the one struck one great stroke of luck that I've had is I've spent almost all of my career in Asia. I moved to Asia when I was 25 in Hong Kong, and have lived here most of the time since then. And what I realized very early on is that looking north from Hong Kong, as far as you could see, there were Chinese factories to the, the horizon, full of 19-year-old women making $5 a day. And this clearly was going to completely change everything. How could the United States paying its workers $200 a day with benefits compete? It was clear that this was going to deindustrialize the United States and cause great deflationary pressures and eventually social instability. And that's what we've seen. So unless you understand the significance of globalization, Unless you understand that our wage, our labor pool has expanded by 23 times and is now full of people earning less than $10 a day, then you would, unless you grasp that our economic environment has completely changed, then you're still going to be stuck in the old mindset that if you overheat the economy by too much government debt and too much money creation, that's going to lead to inflation. Now, everyone expected this to happen after 2008. Now, the first round of quantitative easing was in 2008, and we had three rounds altogether, the last one ending in 2014. But during that time, the, the Fed expanded its balance sheet from $900 billion to $4.5 trillion. And, and the government debt, we had trillion-dollar budget deficits for four or five years in a row. And almost everyone believed, and I have to include myself, in that group, people thought this was going to lead to higher rates of inflation. And especially in the early years, it looked like that was going to happen. In 2011, for instance, their food prices went up a lot in the world. And this led to the Arab Spring. The people in North Africa couldn't afford to buy food and they started 
toppling governments. And this looked like it was going to end badly, uh, just like the textbooks said it would. But what happened? Food prices were high. The next year, the farmers planted a lot more food and food prices collapsed again. And so the lesson that everyone needs to draw from that experience was, well, you know, we're in a different economic environment now. We had this extraordinary surge in government debt, this extraordinary round of money creation by not only the U.S. central bank, but by all the central banks in the world. And we still don't get to 2% inflation at the core level. So you can either be stuck in the past and believe that just because we had this massive increase in the money supply, you know, the, the first round of quantitative easing caused the base money, the monetary base, to grow 100% year on year. That was much more than it grew in World War II at the peak of the war. In World War II, the large increase in the money supply led to high rates of inflation. They had to put uh, price controls in place to try to control the inflation. But this time, the money supply grew much more in 2009, 100%. And again, in 2011, and again in 2013, three times it grew more than at the peak of World War II, and inflation didn't budge. And so that's, I mean, people need to understand why that, ha why, what has changed. And what has changed is our labor, labor pool has expanded 23 times. And not only has it expanded, but it's now comprised of people, you know, a billion people would probably be glad to work for $15 a day. Well, it's interesting where you look at also with what's happened last year is, I would say, and I haven't really studied this, but you'd assume that you know, there were some supply chain breakdowns. There was disruption at the same time as when things like that happen, they only get stronger. And, you know, I was reading some news recently about, you know, some of the US based manufacturing, specifically Ford, you know, moving a billion dollar a year plant to uh, Mexico. So you're going to probably start seeing more of that, especially if you, you know, have tax increases that the administration wants to, to push forward. So maybe before we get into how this type of, economics is going to influence investments, influence the you know, economy at large, global economy, US economy. Maybe speak briefly to the, the role of taxes in all of this. Because the assumption is that the money printing, right? Again, this might be classical, but it's money printing, right? Or stimulating the economy, creating this type of injection, right? Also comes with the need to increase revenue. Right, and either that's going to come in volume, staying at the same tax rate, or tax rates going up and increasing the volume that way. So, what role? Yeah, maybe just go and speak to the role of taxes in all of this, especially with the you know in the U.S. Okay, well, let me give you a, a roundabout answer to that, and let me make sure I don't forget to come back to taxes. I don't really think it's necessary to increase taxes, and. I wouldn't particularly object if they did increase taxes, but that's that's not something I advocate. I don't think I think we can what I do advocate and what I think we are beginning to see now is more and more people are going to reach the same conclusion that I have. In fact, you can see this more and more people are reaching this conclusion. A modern monetary theory 
has become mainstream now. So are you saying that your philosophy and theory is akin or closely aligns with modern monetary theory? Well, let me tell you what my theory is, and then we can compare the two or what my ideas are. Because we're now living in this different environment, I think, and I think we're beginning to see this implemented in, in government policy. We have managed to pull through the crisis of 2008 without having hyperinflation. And now we've responded to this global pandemic with a $5 trillion increase in government debt last year, so far with no inflation. Now, there's probably going to be some pickup in inflation, but 18 months from now, we'll probably be back to below 2% core inflation again. And so what lessons should we learn from this? Well, the lessons that are being learned from this, now you have the Biden administration who's talking about having a perhaps a $3 trillion infrastructure spending plan. Of course, that would not be in one year. That would pro- They haven't said over how many years, but we're probably talking five to 10 years, perhaps. So, But this already represents quite a different shift in ideas about what the government's going to do going forward. The lesson that I think is vitally important for us to, to learn from this is since we have been able to have the government borrow so much money and the Fed finance it by paper money creation, what I would like to see is for the government over the next 10 years to undertake a multi-trillion dollar investment program in the industries of the future in cooperation with the private sector. So the industries of the future, what industries? Well, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotics, nanotech, biotech, genetic engineering, um, and green, green energy. Green energy, yeah, alternative energy, yeah. So if the government can increase its debt by $5 trillion in one year alone, I think it would be quite easy for the government over a 10-year period to finance a 10-year investment, to a $10 trillion investment program, not handing out money for free to everyone, but investing it in these industries. And if they do that, that would turbocharge U.S. productivity and economic growth. Global productivity. Yep. And globally. And they could do this by entering into joint ventures with the private sector. For example, the government could, you know, Pick the 10,000 most promising American entrepreneurs and scientists and set up hundreds, or if not thousands, of companies with them, with the government funding these companies lavishly and keep in exchange for keeping a 60% equity stake. And the managers get to manage the company, the entrepreneurs and the scientists manage the companies and keep a 40% equity stake. And in this way, we would, you know, the US economy for most Americans has been stagnant now since the 1970s. Well, this would radically accelerate, it would induce a new technological revolution. And it's crucial that the United States do this, not only because it can, I mean, first of all, it should because it can. And in a sense, it's a moral imperative because these sorts of investments, you can see what happened through Operation Warp Speed with government funding and government guarantees. We got a vaccine really in quick. less than a year. We need to target a cancer vaccine using the same process. We have limitless amount, effectively limitless amounts of money that we could invest. The National Cancer Institute, which is the government institution charged with finding a cure for cancer, its budget is $6 billion a year. That's not working. Uh, 
let's try 60 or 160. And if we do invest on this sort of scale, literally, we have the chance of curing all the diseases and radically and ending aging and radically expanding life expectancy. And so for that reason, we should do it. But also, in addition to that, we are in a race with China and we're losing. In a big way. (laughs) China is now investing more in research and development than the United States is. And but they're also expanding their economic influence, you know, through Belt and Road, right? They're expanding that into multiple countries, essentially investing in their infrastructure, right? Which also strengthens their financial or economic power. That's right. And it's one thing if they colonize Africa. It's an entirely different thing if they develop artificial intelligence before we do. Mm. Because whoever gets to artificial general intelligence first, that level where computers can do everything humans can, from there, the computers become exponentially smarter really fast. Whoever controls that controls the future. China has won the 5G race. America's not even in the, the race. The United States doesn't ramp up its investment in artificial intelligence and all of these new industries, China is going to win. And once they do, they will, the world will be at their mercy. Now, I'm, I have nothing against China or Chinese people at all, but it's generally a very bad idea uh, to allow some foreign power to become vastly superior to you technologically. Throughout history, the technologically superior civilizations don't treat the inferior civilizations very kindly. And within 15 years from now, we are going to be an inferior civilization at China's mercy. And they may be, they may be a, a kind master. They may not do anything. They may just stay in China and uh, continue prospering there. On the other hand, they might not. Now, I've been spending this, this year of COVID reading all of Winston Churchill's books about World War I and World War II. He wrote five volumes on World War I, six volumes on World War II. And it's extraordinary, his warnings about first the rise of Germany in the years leading up to World War I, and then, and then even more loudly, his warnings about, China, about Germany rearming in the 1930s. And no one listened. We're now in the same sort of situation. If, if we don't understand that we're about to be surpassed technologically by China uh, and do something about it really, really soon, then uh, we're, we're going to become a, a second-rate vulnerable power by the middle of the next decade. And there's no reason that we have to allow this to happen. We have the resources, the financial resources to do this. We have the scientists to do this. All we need to do is have the willpower to do this. And if we do, we can remain the dominant, preeminent global superpower and lock in another American century. If we don't, you know, our destiny will no longer be within our own control. So this is where this is what's going through my head. So first off, you know, I look at what you what you just said, and I think we do have the wherewithal, the mindset, uh, the psychology to innovate. I'm not sure if you know what the what the X Prize is, but there's a a group that. Uh, raises capital, and we're not talking, 
you know, billions. Well, collectively it's probably billions, but I think their top prize is like $20 million, but they create a prize of anyone who can solve some sort of problem. The problems that have been solved, uh, I think the ones that come to mind are uh, being able to, you know, grow meat from stem cells and and be able to produce that at a certain dollar amount per pound, and they get twenty million dollars if they can figure that out. And I think the wherewithal is is there. At the same time, the psychology, I would say, collectively in the United States, is is a headwind of sorts, right? Where if you if you start to encourage right investment in these types of innovations with an equity stake. You know there'll be this you know socialism psychology that that resists that. But I look at interesting this last year where you've had so much intervention, right? It's kind of like curbing the psychology that would resist that that type of activity. Uh, and so my question to to you is is that is that uh, on point? And if so, or maybe not if so, do you see signs? that there is the desire or at least the initiative of the current administration to do things like you're mentioning? Because China's already doing it. The, the US, I think, is extremely innovative. At the same time, it's not innovation at the level that you're speaking to, where you have trillions of dollars going into these you know, specific uh, in- industries or innovations. That's right. The government could invest on such a so much larger a scale, or or provide the financing. If there, if you look at the list of the top ten American companies ranked by the amount of money that they invest in research and development, you know you have all the usual suspects that you would expect: uh, Alphabet and Apple, even Intel. But at they're at the they're investing something like in research and development. Something like, at the most, twenty billion dollars a year. Wow! And whereas the the government could afford to do this, you know, on that's a drop in the bucket compared to what they've been <laughs> talking about lately. <laughs> well, that's right. Precisely, the Fed is creating one hundred and twenty billion dollars every thirty days. So the potential is there for us to ramp this up on a very aggressive scale. Like we did uh, when at the when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, it appeared that they were going to overtake us uh, technologically, and the government responded by radically accelerating government investment in research and development, and we won the space race. We landed a man on the moon, and because of all of this investment in, uh, at NASA, we were able to develop highly effective intercontinental ballistic missiles, which the Soviet Union couldn't keep up with, and they effectively went bankrupt trying. And so there's no longer any Soviet Union. That government investment worked out really well, and it created all kinds of new inventions and technologies, like the handheld computer uh, calculator, for instance. But since then, now the government is investing something like, relative to GDP, they're only investing one-third as much relative to GDP in research and development as they did in the early 1960s. And that's one of the main reasons that productivity in the United States has slowed down because the the government, the private sector can't really fund research and development in basic research and development. Those, Those very basic things that don't immediately turn into products that can be sold, but provide the foundation upon which later 
investment can lead to products that can be sold. So we're not investing enough in basic research and development. And so are we moving in that direction? Well, I've been talking about this now for many years, uh, long before I ever heard of modern monetary theory. Um, but yes, I think we are moving in that direction. I mean, first, we're going to see a big infrastructure spending plan. Now, infrastructure is fine, but it's not going to do what uh, in a, a very large-scale investment project program would do in, in investing in new industries and technologies. We'll have better bridges, better roads, hopefully better broadband, and hopefully a better clean energy network. But it's not going to cure cancer or make sure that we win the AI race. But it's, it's still a shift. It, it will create jobs. It will improve the economy. It will make the middle class better off. But and, and, and President Biden, when he was still running for office, he pledged that he would have this kind of investment in infrastructure. But also in his campaign, he also pledged to, to invest $300 billion in research and development. Now, $300 billion is, um, is far too little, but it is a step in the right direction. And, so, and at the end of 2019, uh, Charles Schumer also made a presentation in Washington in front of the defense establishment where he warned that we're in danger of being overtaken by China in artificial intelligence. He said he was going to propose a bill to invest $100 billion in these new industries and technologies over a five-year period. Well, that's just, that's, that's nothing, in but it's still a step in the right direction and an indication that our society is moving in that direction in the recognition that we can do this and that we need to do this. And therefore, in the past, people would always say, you're out of your mind if you think anything like that is going to happen. Well, not so much anymore because things are moving in that direction. And so how does what I'm saying compare with modern monetary theory? Well, I suppose what I'm saying could be thought of as a subset of modern monetary theory. Essentially, what they're saying is in a country that can create its own money, like the United States, there are effectively no financial constraints on what it can do. However, there are resource constraints. If you use up all your resources, or in other words, hit full capacity in using the resources available to you in terms of labor, your factories, the commodities available, then you will then get high rates of inflation. So it's the inflation you need to worry about. It's not the fact that we can't afford to do something. There's no limit as to how much money the central bank can create. So there are no financial constraints. The constraint is when do you hit the resource constraints? And then you're going to have to stop spending for a while or take some other measures to get the inflation under control. So in a nutshell, that's essentially what they're saying. And basically, I think that is, that is true. It's hard to argue with that, I believe. But I don't want to take on and be required to defend the entire modern monetary theory in its entirety. All I want to do is to persuade the American public 
and the, the U.S. Congress that over the next 10 years, it would be really, really easy for the U.S. government to finance a $10 trillion investment in the industries of the future. Just $10 trillion, That's all I'm asking for over 10 years. And like I said, over the last year, the government debt expanded by $5 trillion in one year alone, and the Fed created $3.5 trillion. So I think what that experience is going to show is just how easy it would be for the government to carry out a, the plan that I'm discussing. And so that's where I'm drawing my, my defenses. <laughs> that's, that's all I want to prove. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to overreach and try to defend any broader theories, keeping it tight. This is what we can do. We can do this easily. This is what we need to do. And if we don't do it, not only will we fail to cure all the diseases, we are going to be in grave national danger. Well, let's unpack that maybe as one of the final points, right? Because I think there's there's definitely evidence. And if you, obviously you being in Asia, you probably are seeing things that most other people are just not paying attention to. But talk about where China is right now, because if they do reach that milestone before the US, why is that a bad thing for the US? And I'm specifically speaking to, you know, maybe the AI would be a good a good example. If they reach general AI, I mean, they reached 5G before us, but we essentially are leveraging some of their technology for our infrastructure. And correct me if I'm wrong. So wouldn't it be safe to say that that would be a similar conclusion if they reached general AI before the United States? Okay, well, just one word before that, taxes. You were asking me about taxes. So I don't think we have to increase taxes to do what I just described to answer your question. Should we increase taxes? Probably so. You know, the wealthy top 1%, the top 1% of the top 1% have more wealth than the bottom 50%. That's not healthy for democracy. But again, this is not a battle I intend to fight. I'm not going to go out and say we must raise taxes on the wealthy. I really don't care that much whether we do or not. That is not necessary for us to do in order to be able to invest $10 trillion in the industries of the future over the next 10 years. And if threatening to tax the rich people more, makes it more difficult to make these investments that I'm advocating, then don't tax them. <laughs> I don't, you don't have to tax them. If that's going to get in the way of making these investments and curing all the diseases and, and turbocharging economic growth and securing national security, then forget about taxing the rich people and the corporations. It's not necessary. But in terms of social equity, it would probably be the right thing to do. Somebody else can fight that battle. So now China. So China has had brilliant leadership going on now since the 80s, beginning with Deng Xiaoping. And of course, they have a totalitarian regime. So it's very easy for them to carry out any policies that they devise. So that totalitarian regimes are very effective when they have brilliant leadership. But when the problem is, is sometimes they have insane leadership, as they did under Chairman Mao. And when that happens, they're still totalitarian. And 30 million people starved to death in the early 1960s in China because of Chairman Mao's madness. 
So I'm not advocating totalitarianism by any means, but just to analyze what has gone on in China is they've had very good leadership in this totalitarian system since Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s. He said, I don't care if the cat is white or black as long as it can catch mice. You know, I don't care if we have socialism or capitalism as long as it works. And what they have is effectively capitalism directed by the central government uh, in a very clever way with a plan to invest heavily in the most important industries and develop their country so that they can become the, the dominant power in the world long before the middle of this century. They have a plan. They publish it. They talk about it. They talk about it a little bit less now since it's caused the Americans to wake up to the fact that they're about to overtake us. But they have a plan and it's working really well. And the danger is, you said, what's so bad about them getting to 5G first or AI first? Well, once they get to AI, then it's going to cause such a leap in technology that it would be the 21st century equivalent of China having a nuclear monopoly. It will make them all powerful. They will be so much, once they get to that point where machines become more intelligent than humans and continue to teach themselves to become more and more and more intelligent, which is going to happen very soon, then whoever has that power first can do anything it wants with the rest of the world. So, all right. So maybe two things. Number one, maybe illustrate an example of how they would actually exercise that power. And then maybe the second point is if they get to that level, are you saying that it's possible to keep it completely proprietary so that others can't use it or leverage it? Well, on the second point, yes, they could keep it completely proprietary. And on the first point, well, which was, will they use it? Well, we don't know if they will use it or not. I mean, just because they have the capacity to take over the world doesn't mean they will. But do we want to put ourselves in a position where a potential adversary has a power to conquer us and completely destroy our civilization? And that's the position we will be in in less than 15 years unless we begin acting very aggressively now and making full use of our financial resources and our capacity to innovate. Sometimes <laughs> I just I laugh at like just the you know the conversations that we we have at this at this level. You know, 200 years ago people were still trying to figure out how to survive the winter and now we have, you know, completely, you know, transformed society, life and you know, I, Richard, I, I love speaking to you because you are have a different perspective than most, and you also speak to you speak to what's going on, and it's kind of the cause and effect side of things, right? We spoke about this a year ago, and sure enough, you know, we're at this point where this is what the government does, and it's what they're going to do, and it's kind of creating a more buy-in psychology. Right, where and I don't want to put it in a negative context, but the boiling frog, right? It's kind of like you stimulate a little bit, you stimulate more, you stimulate more, you stimulate more. And the more you do it, just become people become accustomed to it. Right. It's kind of like once you hit a, a threshold of, you know, a billion, that's one thing. Now we've hit thresholds of trillion, 
And now the psychology behind a trillion here, a trillion there, right? It's easier to stomach for you know those that would uh, resist. And let's just let's just talk about this as kind of a, a final point. Knowing this, right? Obviously, you have the 1.9 trillion, which is you know, I mean, there's still money from last year's, you know, from 2020 stimulus that hasn't been spent yet. Obviously, this money is just not all going to make its way into the markets in in a day. It's going to most likely happen over the course of time. But three trillion dollar infrastructure. What should investors be taking from this? Those are some of the causes. That's the stimulus, right? What's the response? What are the effects? Well, let's talk about making money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we've we've gone into the philosophical realm here and, and geopolitics, and that's the important thing, in my opinion. But with my video newsletter, Macro Watch, this is not what I talk about in Macro Watch. This is what I talk about in my books, not what I talk about in Macro Watch. Macro Watch focuses on the forces that are driving the economy and the financial markets, big developments that are likely to have some impact on people's wealth and the state of the economy. And the main forces that affect the economy and wealth, there are two big things. It's credit growth and liquidity. Credit growth is how much does credit grow by every year in the country? And liquidity is how, basically how much money the Fed is creating and pumping into the economy. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But something really interesting is happening right now that could potentially have a very big impact on the financial markets just over the next few months. And so there is, as I'm, I think we touched on at the very beginning, there's truly a, just a tidal wave of money that's being pumped into the financial markets right now. And for instance, one measure, well, okay, so we know the Fed is creating $120 billion a month, right? So if we're talking about just the next three months until June, that's going to be $360 billion more. But on top of that, and this is something that most people are not aware of, the Treasury Department has a bank account at the Fed it's called the Treasury General Account. Oh, this is the that's that three hundred billion I was talking to. It was the drawdown from that account, is what I saw last week. Okay, okay, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So, how does that work? Now, in the past, no one knew about this Treasury General Account, or it didn't make very much difference because the government never had very much money in it. <laughs> but what happened last year is. We had the CARES Act, right? The $2 trillion CARES Act in the first March or April last year. And immediately after that, everyone expected a second, even bigger stimulus package. The Democrats in the House passed a $3 trillion stimulus bill that never went anywhere. But people were talking about 2 or $3 trillion worth of stimulus in the second half of the year. And so the Treasury Department wisely issued a lot of bonds and raised a lot of money, borrowed money at low, very low interest rates to have to be prepared for this stimulus act when it did pass so they would have enough money. And so the amount, but Congress never passed the act until the middle of December. And when they did, it was only $900 billion in the middle of December. So the, the amount of money piling up in the, the government, the treasury had borrowed all this money 
but Congress didn't authorize them to spend it. And so it piled up into their bank account at the Fed until they had, uh, at a peak, $1.8 trillion in this bank account. And that was $1.8 trillion that they had sucked out of the economy, sucked out of the financial markets by borrowing it. They borrowed it and they didn't spend it. It was just stuck in their bank account. Well, now everything has changed. Now we got the $900 billion in stimulus package in December. So they started spending money out of their bank account at the Fed. And now we've got the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that's just passed. And so suddenly, Treasury Department is spending this money. And as they spend it, it pumps it back into the financial markets. And you can see this by looking at the level of bank reserves. Bank reserves are a good measure of the amount of liquidity that there is in the financial markets. And the Treasury Department has told us that they're going to run down this right now. It's, it's running down very quickly. Like you said, it expanded, uh, I think, last week by, I mean, they, they spent, I think it was a quarter of a trillion dollars last week alone. So it's, they are running it down right now. It still has, as of, they announced the data every Wednesday. So once a week, we get an update on how much they have in this account. They still have a trillion dollars in it now. Three weeks ago, they had $1.4 trillion in it. But they've told us by the middle of June, they're going to run that down to $500 billion. So that means they have a trillion now. Over the next three months, they're going to spend billion. $500 billion. And that's on top of the $360 billion that the Fed is going to print over the next three months. So that's $800 billion that will be pumped into the financial markets by the end of June. And that will cause bank reserves to jump by a further 21% by the end of June. And, and it's, then, at a, it's at a record level right now, isn't it? That's right. It's already at an all-time record high. Yeah. And it's moving up vertically and very, very rapidly. And then if you look out toward the end of the year, well, we don't know for sure how much they'll still have $500 billion in their account. Let's just assume it stays at $500 billion. But the Fed is going to create $120 billion a month for six months. That's another $720 billion. So by the end of the year, bank reserves will, could be up by 36% from where they are now, which is already, as you said, a record high. And normally, this sort of liquidity, this is a tidal wave of liquidity going into the financial markets. And other, normally, this sort of every time bank reserves go up, the, the Dow, the stock market goes up. You can see QE1, QE2, QE3, pandemic. Bank reserves go up, the markets go up, asset prices go up. We have asset price inflation. It's easy to understand why when you create and inject a whole lot of new money into the markets, it's not surprising that prices go up and asset prices. So people need to be aware of this, even though and it's not surprising why there's such a frenzy going on in the markets right now, why you have these SPACs and crazy Robinhood stocks doing insane things and, and shares like Tesla trading on infinite PE multiples. And <laughs> it's because of this tidal wave of money. And this is not going to go away. This is going to, in fact, it's going to become much more extreme. Now, the only thing that the world is full of uncertainties, but the most likely thing that could derail this scenario from playing out is that we do get much higher interest rates. If the 10-year government bond yield keeps moving up, 
sharply because people are afraid of inflation. Now, these inflation fears have already pushed up the bond yields from 1% at the beginning of the year to 1.75% now. If they keep moving higher, the higher inflation, the higher interest rates could pull the rug out from under this big stock market, this liquidity driven boom. Because, I mean, people have a lot of money. There's a lot of money in the system that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to buy stocks with it. You know, they can put it under their bed and not and just sit on it if they become nervous enough and have a panic attack. So we may see a few panic attacks in the market, particularly if people become more concerned about inflation. And it's possible that they will become more concerned about inflation because in March and April, when the inflation numbers are reported, they're going to look a lot higher this year than they did last year because last year the prices were falling. So the year-on-year effect is going to be a bit scary. But so we may have a few sell-offs in the stock market before we get to 2022. But And who knows what else could happen. But if I had to bet, it would seem to me that this, this enormous amount of liquidity in the market is likely to continue putting upward pressure on asset prices for at least the next many months. And now this boom won't last forever. Bubbles never last forever. Bubbles do eventually pop, but you never know when they're going to pop. And often it's the last part of the bubble that is the sweetest, that is the most profitable. So it's generally, I believe I've learned through my experiences, you can recognize a bubble, but it's probably the best strategy is just to ride, surf that, bu- surf that bubble until it pops, because you never know how big it's going to get. And normally, and when it does start to pop, you get a pretty clear indication that this is the end. And if you if you lose ten percent on the way down from the peak, you're still pro- you could be up a hundred percent from where you would have been if you'd sold it when you first thought it was a bubble. So do you have a aware. gauge on any you know behavior associated with capital gains, the change in capital gains tax, where you know if new tax legislation is is introduced and there's kind of a high likelihood that you know it will pass and it includes you know capital gains being taxed at you know the the marginal rate <laughs> i mean do you think people will be like okay i'm going to take my you know i'm going to take my gains right now pay my 20% instead of having to pay ordinary do you have a gauge for what could ha- what could potentially happen there i think the the main factor is just the force of liquidity if there is this much more money going into the economy and into the financial markets that weight of money is going to push asset prices up uh, regardless of what they do to the capital gains tax and I believe what the Biden administration is saying is they're not going to increase taxes until this pandemic ends. Uh, so that's probably not going to happen until next year. So that's beyond the this window. discussion yep. that I'm discussing here. One day, the Fed will stop printing $120 billion a month. And that's going to be a sad day for the market. When they, when they make that announcement or when they start dropping hints that they're going to start reducing that, then we're going to have a big taper tantrum again. And, there and the, be... the hint itself is what's going to cause it, right? Not the actual, you know, the actual action. It's the, the hint of it. <laughs> that's right. Now, this brings up another interesting topic. And in the past, say up until now, in fact, the Fed was very concerned about the level of the stock market. 
They needed the stock market to go up to create wealth, to help drive the economy, because credit was growing too slowly after 2008 to drive the economy. Credit had been the big growth driver. It was expanding rapidly. That created economic growth. But after 2008, it stopped expanding rapidly. And it was just growing just barely enough to keep the economy out of recession for years and years. And so the Fed orchestrated higher stock prices and higher asset prices with 0% interest rates round after round of quantitative easing. And any time the stock market started to wobble, then the Fed would concede and announce that they were going to loosen monetary policy in one way or the other to push the market back up again. But perhaps things are different now. This Now, the Fed is not so reliant on this year on the stock market. It's no longer a hostage to the whims of the stock market because this massive stimulus package is going to generate 6 or 7% GDP growth this year. And so perhaps that explains the recent attitude of Fed Chairman Powell. The markets have been nervous because the 10-year government bond yields have been going up so rapidly. And many people have expected him to say something about that. For instance, if the Fed didn't want them to go up, the Fed could say, as you know, we're buying $120 billion worth of bonds every month. Well, we think the 10-year bond yield has gone too high. So today, we're going to buy an extra $100 billion worth of government bonds and push up the bond price and drive the bond yield back down to 1%. They have the ability to control the bond yield at absolutely any level they choose. And people have expected him to say something. After all, the Bank of, Central Bank of Australia did that. They intervened and bought more bonds and pushed the yield back down. The ECB in Europe did that. They said, we're going to buy more bonds, and they pushed their yields back down. The Fed hasn't done that, and that surprised a lot of people. But perhaps they haven't done that because they wouldn't mind the stock market correcting somewhat now because it is, it's a wild frenzy going on in the market, and it's going to become even wilder as this liquidity tidal wave hits the markets in the months ahead. So, Well, you're likely to have more velocity, too, as people get vaccinated, right? They start to socialize, right? And I think last year, obviously, most people did not spend stimulus money. They paid off debt or saved it because they were still in the middle. There wasn't really an end in in sight. Now there's an end in sight, which I think is going to change behavior associated with the money that people are getting. Yes, that's right. So just to wrap that up, the Fed may not be so quick this time to cave in if the stock market has a 20% 20% correction as they have been in recent years. Uh, but it's hard to see how there's going to be a 20% correction as long as all this tidal wave of money keeps getting pumped into the markets. Well, it's such a good point with just what's already been committed to going in. And it's a, I mean, it's almost a trillion or a little over a trillion dollars in the next couple of months. <laughs> so those are the sorts of things that I focus on in MacroWatch. The okay. last uh, many videos that I've done have been discussing inflation and this liquidity tsunami. And there'll be more of that to come. The next video is going to be is going to explain why large increases in the money supply growth no longer lead to high rates of inflation as they did in the past. But that's a very long story. <laughs> but uh, so that's but what the same, macro. At the same works. time, it's 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 one of those 
this is it's such a compelling narrative, right? As to what's happened this past year, I think it is right in line with what you've been saying with the books that you've written, what you've spoken about for years. And it is, I mean, it's the, it's the precedent upon which all future economic influence is going to be based. And so I would say, you know, it's, it has, uh, it has legs to it, Richard. And I think this is going to be, you know, it's going to be important for people to realize because oftentimes people will stick to, you know, past assumptions, which may no longer be valid. And I think we spoke to that with regards to classical economics and people still looking at, you know, that as a axiom upon which they make decisions. And I think it's, uh, the world's changed. A lot of people view it just as morally wrong for the government to be managing the economy in this way. And that's <laughs> fine. That's fine for them to have that opinion. But even if they hold that opinion very strongly, they really need to be aware that this is what the government is going to do. They're already that's doing it. It's like, okay, it could be wrong, but they're doing it. And it's one of those, you can't, you and, can't really go to right and, and wrong at this point, because that's just the way in, things, in which things are run. It's how the economy is built, right? So if you want to be able to make money, you need to understand how the economy really works today. Whether you like it or don't like it, you need to understand how it works. It doesn't work the way that it used to back when gold was money. It works in an entirely different way now. So what MacroWatch does with, without having a lot of political commentary at all, it just explains how the economy really works now without imposing any value judgments on it for the most part. It explains that credit growth drives economic growth and liquidity drives the financial markets. And it explains these trends in a very easy way using lots of charts and each video is normally about 15 to 20 minutes long. Each one usually has about 30 or 40 charts. And there's a new one every two weeks. So I hope your listeners will visit my website and check it out. They can go to findmacrowatch at richardduncaneconomics.com. That's my website, richardduncaneconomics.com. And if they would like to subscribe to MacroWatch, I'd like to offer them a 50% discount coupon code. If they go to richardduncaneconomics.com and hit the subscribe button, they'll be prompted to put in a coupon code. And if they use the discount coupon code June, like the month of June, they can subscribe at a 50% discount. And if they do, they'll receive one, more, one new video from me every couple of weeks for the next year. And they'll also have immediate access to all of the videos in the MacroWatch archives. There must be more than 75 hours of videos in the, in the archives now that I've made over the last seven and a half years explaining every significant macroeconomic development that has occurred since October 2013 and explaining how the economy really works now. And there are also a number of courses there that they can begin watching immediately. So I hope they'll go to my website, richardduncaneconomics.com. And at the very least, while they're there, they can sign up for my free blog. Well, Richard, we'll post that in the show notes as well. So if you guys are in your car or listening where you can't write anything down, just go ahead over to the show notes at the Well Standard. And we have all of those, all of those links as well as the coupon code in there. Richard, this has been this has been fascinating. It doesn't seem like it's been a year since we last uh, last spoke, but you know, I'm grateful for what you're putting out there, the message you're sending. I know it's making a difference and I'm going to get the word out again because even though this was a very long podcast, 
right? The philosophy side of things, I think, is important to understand. The practical side of things is also important to to understand. And yeah, I'm grateful for the newsletter you put out. It's an incredibly reasonably reasonable price. <laughs> it, it's drop, not even a drop in the bucket. So thank you for keeping it economical. Yeah, like I said, we'll we'll get the word out and make sure everyone has uh, has access to at least your blog, right? So they can get some insight into what's going on. Well, thanks, Patrick. It's thank you for having me back on. I really always enjoy our conversations. Yep. I love having them. <laughs> so Richard, thanks again. Let's let's try to do something sooner than a year. How about that? Okay. Let's do that. I look forward to it. All right, Richard. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,